There are two scriptures I want you to turn to this morning. Second Peter chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Peter chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You noticed in the bulletin that um, June 17th and 24th, I preached messages on humility. Today, God's message is, will God spare America? And then July 8th and 15th, two messages on what it means to be surrendered and submitted to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus. Then uh, July 22nd, August 5th on Messages on spiritual warfare. They're there in the bulletin. So today, the question, will God spare America? You know, to answer the question, what God will do. Now, you better get this because everything else is based on it now. To answer the question, what, what will God do in any given situation? You have to go to the Word of God and find out what God has done in the past and what God is doing in the present. Now, you can speculate on what you think God will do, but unless what what you say you believe God is going to do is tied to His Word, See, you, we, we, we can know what God's going to do in the present by what God has done in the past. And so you go to the Word of God and say, well, now, Lord, what are you going to do in this situation? How are you going to respond to this circumstance, whether it's in an individual's life or in a nation? So to answer the question, will God spare America, the only thing we can do is go to the Word of God And see what God has done in the past. Now, also, we can go to history and see how God has honored his word when his people obeyed him to see what God can do in the present. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, tells us what God did in the past. All right? Follow me in the word of God. For if God did not spare, remember, will God spare America? If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and God did not spare the ancient world, but he saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to destruction, making them, listen, an example to those who should afterward live ungodly. He but, del- but he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under judgment, under punishment for the day of judgment. So God didn't spare the angels that sinned. He didn't spare the old world, but he did spare Noah and eight people, including Noah. He didn't spare God at Sodom and Gomorrah, but he did spare Lot. And so we see what God did in the past. All right. Now, one other example over in second Corinthians, uh, excuse me, it's first Corinthians. I said second Corinthians, first Corinthians chapter 10. Once again, we see what God did in the past. And he tells us it's an example of what God will do in the present. All right. He goes on and talks about the fact that, and I'm not going to read all these verses. It says, but I'll read about three or four. I do, do, 
do not want you to know, be unaware, verse 1, that all our fathers were under the cloud when they came out of Egypt. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. All right, verse 6. Now these things, I just read them, became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. All right, and then he goes on and talks about how they committed uh, sexual immorality and how they tempted God. And now look at verse 11 again. It, it, you know, it says over in Peter, examples. Verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples. Now listen to this. And were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. He said, now, I, I wrote this to instruct you, to let you know how these people were examples of what happened as far as God is was concerned. So the only way we know what God's going to do in the present is by what God did in the past. Now, I will say this. There is time after time after time after time in the Old Testament when Israel would absolutely rebel against God chase after other gods and their idols, the judgment of God would come on them and they would repent, God would have mercy on them, and God would restore them. I remember one particular time when they, God was going to absolutely wipe them out because they were worshiping the golden calf. And Moses interceded and said, God, don't, if you kill them, you might as well kill me. Your reputation is at stake. You brought them out of e Egypt. And, and so God had mercy and he didn't destroy them. And other examples of how God does respond to wicked nations is Nineveh, desperately wicked nation, sent a rebellious preacher named Jonah, and he preached the righteous truth of God, and Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and God spared that country. So there are examples of where God did not spare the individuals or nations or cities, and then there's time after time where God did spare the Israelites, and he did spare Nineveh. Now, so we just simply say that the way we know what God's going to do in the present is by what God's done in the future. Now, I, I want to uh, go, go, go in about three areas here today that I think are very important. First of all, I want to talk about our form of government, America's form of government. I feel like I need to do that. Then I want to answer um, the question, will God spare America? Then I want to say, talk about how God, what God will do with his church in these last days. Now, I, I want us to think about the government we have in this country. You know what struck me? Egypt just elected a president. Are you ready for this? It was the first publicly elected president in 7,000 years. They'd never had an election where the people elected the president. There were the pharaohs. And for 7,000 years, they lived under whoever was the ruling family or whatever. the dicta they, they, they had no choice, no choice in who their leaders were. None. 7,000 years. But you know, when God set up this government in America, and he did, our founding fathers prayed, sought God, and they came up with the most wonderful and brilliant form of government that any nation has ever operated under. It has three branches. The executive branch, the presidency, and those around him. Elected by the people. Elected every four years by the people. Then there is the legislative branch, the House of Representatives in the Senate, and they're elected by the people. And who goes in those offices and what they do, the people determine. 
this is unheard of in Syria or Iraq or China or, or hey, you know, there's no freedom. There's dictatorship, dictatorship. There's no freedom to elect your officials, I'm telling you. It's, it's unknown. Most of the countries in the world are ruled by dictators or tyrants. But we can elect the person in the executive branch. We can elect the person in the legislative branch. And we do have the power to elect those in the judicial. The executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And our, our forefathers said they will balance each other out. The legislature can check what the executive branch does. And we've seen that now. There's been legislation that wanted, was wanted to be passed. And the House would vote not to do it. And the Senate would vote to do it. And it's, been, it's, it's called uh, partisan politics, whatever you want to call it. But, but see, there is a checkmate. The executive branch cannot do what it wants to do without the approval of House and Senate. Now, even the judges are supported by the executive branch, the president, and has to be approved by the legislative branch. The problem is once a justice in the Supreme Court is appointed, it's for life, and there's no recourse to remove them except by impeachment. But I'm saying to you, there's never been a better form of government where people could absolutely determine the direction of their nation and their country. I mean, God, I mean, folks, listen. The freedom to elect those who lead us is just unknown in most countries of the world. Now, I know in some countries like Europe and France and England, yes, but even in Germany in Hitler's time, it wasn't. It was taken away. So, you know, God has blessed us with a wonderful, wonderful form of government. But I, 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 I would remind you what George Washington said. He said this form of government, said any form of government, this was before this constitution was drawn up. He said any form of government, government that is not governed by God and the Bible will fail. When our forefathers came up with this democracy, government for the people, by the people, when they came up with this, this is what they said. This government will only work if it's based upon righteous and godly leadership. In other words... It won't work apart from the Bible, the Word of God, and it will not work unless they're righteous, honest, godly people who are placed in office. Our forefathers knew that in a democracy like this, where the people elect their leaders, that if they elect the wrong leaders, the whole thing is going to fall apart because it simply depends. This government is no stronger than those who lead us in the executive branch, the legislative branch, the House and the Senate, and in the judicial branch. It is no better than the people who are in office. None whatsoever. Nothing wrong with the form of government. But the Bible teaches when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people mourn. And so we find America today with a judicial system that said prayer in school was wrong. A judicial system that said you couldn't pray in public places, you couldn't pray in school. A judicial system that ruled that you couldn't have any type of religious display on public property. And so what happened here, we had no recourse against the judicial system, the Supreme Court, because they were appointed by the legislative, uh, the executive branch. And so just by judicial decisions, they've taken away our friend said it's unconstitutional. Said it's illegal. Can't even pray before a football game. Can't even pray before, uh, can't pray before graduation. Now, what it is, we all know that that's wrong. We all know that the myth of separation in church and state is just that, that. It is an absolute myth. It has no basis whatsoever in the Constitution. But what happens? So a school says, we're going to pray before the ball game. Then here comes the ACLU and says, we're going to sue you. So they got a big lawsuit on their hands. And here we go and on. What has happened, there's nothing wrong with the government, form of government. But we have allowed unrighteous and ungodly and unholy people to be put in office. And guess who elected them? The American people elected them. 
And so therefore, we, in, we are in serious trouble today because of unrighteous and ungodly leaders. And it's everybody for himself. So I say that to say this. Once again, we enjoy a freedom that no other nation enjoys anymore coming in November. Guess what we do? We elect a president. We make a decision about the executive branch. We elect people to the House and the Senate. And we, uh, some judges will be elected, but you need to understand that who we elect as president and who we elect in the House and the Senate will determine who the judges will be. And so what I'm saying to you is this. Unless we pray, unless we pray and do everything we can to see that you know who needs to be elected to office in, in, in the executive branch, and you know who needs to be elected in, in office in the House of Representatives in the Senate. Can, can I tell you? Do you mind if I tell you who? People that are, first of all, pro-life. They do not believe in murdering babies in the womb of its mother. Why should we elect a murderer? Because we know that life begins at conception. We know that. It's amazing. Up until a trimester, you could have bought a, a, a child. But if you waited until that child came out of the womb and, and, and then you uh, took its life, that would be considered murder. And it wasn't but a matter of a few days. You see the inconsistency? Not only should, must we elect people that are pro-life, we must elect people that are pro-family. I mean, how could we as a nation elect someone who believes in same-sex marriage? How could that happen? How can that happen? You talk about population control? Huh. Two women can't have kids. Two men can't. But you know, that's op that will be facing us in November. Pro-life. Pro-family. You know what else we'll be facing? You know, we've got a choice. See, we elect the people that lead us. It'll be also about whether we're going to have pro-big government, and the name for that is socialism, or whether we're going to have pro-little government, which is not socialism. So it's obvious that the choice will be clear. Is there any perfect candidate? No. But I'll tell you one thing. When you know where a candidate stands... And he's not pro-life and he's not pro-family. That settles the issue for me. And I want to tell you right now, it's not Republican and it's not Democrat because they've all messed it up big time. <laughs> In Watergate, it was a Republican. In the sex scandal with Monica Lewinsky, it was a Democrat. So it ain't got nothing to do with the label on there. Now, some of the, one party does seem to stand more for moral values, but I'm just telling you, it's individuals. Are you listening to me? Now, here's the thing. Th this is what we've got to do. I know how Alabama will vote. I know. We do have people who have moral convictions and moral fiber in, this, in, in Alabama. And I'm not, I, I know Alabama is going to do the right. I, I believe with all my heart. But I'll tell you, we better play. We better pray. For the swing stage. You better know who they are. Florida, Ohio, and all. You better start praying right now that God will raise up some people that got enough sense to know the difference between right and wrong. And the cloud of deception will be off from them. And looking for the governor for a handout will be removed. And they'll vote the right way. Buddy, we have got to pray that they will vote the right way in November. Amen? And I mean, you better pray. Because it's not a given. I want you to know that. And I believe the only thing that will turn the tide is if we pray. So I'm, I'm saying it's nothing wrong with our form of government. It's that American people have gotten so far away from God, they have erected, elected unrighteous and ungodly people to places of office, and we're, that's, we're in the mess that, mess that we're in. If we had had righteous government, there would never have been the Great Recession that happened four years ago. That's a result of greed and covetousness on the part of the government. That's what it was. They refused to regulate the big banks. They refused to do anything to control because it was all about this. It's all about money. And you and I, every one of us, paid an awful price.
because of inefficient and ineffective government. Well, that's what I wanted to say about our government. Now I want to go to this, the question. Will God spare America? Now you've got to listen to me very carefully um, how I answer this. Will God spare America? God will not spare America's lifestyle. Now, would you underscore that last word? God will not spare America's lifestyle. He hates it. He hates the lifestyle of America. Of course, I could spend a lot of time. I'll just say this. God hates humanism. Humanism is a religion. Humanists manifesto one and two say, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. It's atheistic. Humanist manifesto one and two said, any, any hope of salvation and heaven are illusory and harmful to people and lead them to a false hope. Humanism says no, there are no moral absolutes. The situation determines if it's right or wrong. And situation ethics has become what has been taught all the way through from the lowest to the highest. So you've got to understand, God hates humanism. Hey, by the way, do you remember when we in Mobile took a stand against humanism? Do you all remember that? Do you remember that we won? We said it was a religion. And George Bavard Hand voted and said that it was a religion. And then the next, the, the next court in Montgomery struck it down. I want to tell you right now, you know what determines the, the curriculum in public education and in high schools? And I want to thank God for godly, godly school teachers and godly and righteous people who are in public education. Thank God for you. Stay there as light and salt. We need you. But I'm going to tell you right now, everything's based on humanism. Everything's based on, and God hates humanism because it's another word for atheism. That's all it is. And we're dealing with humanists on every hand. Secondly, you know, God hates America's lifestyle. He hates humanism. And, and I want to tell you this. He hates, um, uh, not only does he hate humanism, but he hates hedonism. And you know what that is? What's that big word, Brother Fred? I'm not sure. Hey, do you know why he, why he hates hedonism? It's called the love of pleasure. The love of pleasure. The Bible says that in the last day, men and women will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And America is a pleasure-mad nation. We love pleasure more. We're a hedonistic nation. And whatever gives us pleasure, right or wrong, that's our God. And God hates hedonism, placing pleasure above God himself. God not only hates humanism, and he not only hates hedonism, but I will tell you, he hates materialism. You know, most of us here today live in a nice home or, or a nice trailer. Most of us drive a nice car. Most of us wear nice clothes. We are, we today are richer than 90% of the people in the world. Three-fourths of people in the world go to bed hungry tonight. They spend all day looking for food. So everybody in this room, you're in the top 10%. And God has blessed us materially. He has. But let me tell you something. Nothing wrong with the material blessings of God. Let me tell you what it is. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It didn't say money was the root of all evil. It said the love of money is the root of all evil. And so what happened? The big banks were greedy and covetous. They bundled loans and said everybody ought to have the right to buy a house, knowing they could never pay for them, knowing that, absolutely knowing that. And then the whole housing market collapsed, the greatest since the Great Depression. And behind every bit of it was greed and covetousness and the love of money. It's called materialism. God hates it. The Bible says, warn those that are rich in this world not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives them all things richly to enjoy. I'm, 
Will God spare America? He won't spare American's lifestyle. He hates it. He hates humanism. He hates hedonism. He hates materialism. He hates it. And I tell you what else he hates. He hates sexual immorality. He hates it. There's no question about it. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged and destroyed because of sexual immorality. And see, we've li- we're in the midst of a sexual revolution of the wrong time. Of the wrong kind. It used to be unheard of in my lifetime that people would live together and not be married. Oh, no, that's, a, that's the norm now. You live together and decide if you're going to get married. Would you show me where that is in the Bible? Sexual revolution of the wrong kind. It used to be if you wanted to watch uh, pornography and all of the filth where they, uh, you know, you know the tragic thing about pornography is that it cheapens, it cheapens marriage and cheapens female dignity. It's almost like it's an animal level thing. And it used to be to watch pornography, you had to go to a sleazy theater on a back street. And now all you've got to do is make one click on your computer and you can see the most filthy stuff that has ever been presented over the waves. And, buddy, people are addicted to it. You talk about addiction. My Lord. It's the largest. Hey, did you know the pornography industry is more than all the money of the NFL and all the money of the uh, Major League Baseball? More money is spent on pornography and all the sporting things. Boy, you say there's a lot of money there, brother. But pornography is way bigger. Billions. Billions of dollars. And now we've gotten to the place that in the first grade in New York, you, you, I didn't, I'm not making this up, in the first grade in New York, they, they, they had a curriculum in which they taught the first graders that homosexuality was an acceptable lifestyle. In the first grade. You see, we've had a sexual revolution. Now, if you speak out against couples, quote, living together, uh, you know, and not being married, if you speak out against uh, homosexuality and lesbianism and say it's a sin, it's wicked, it's ungodly, everybody gets upset and said it's a hate crime. No, it isn't. You know why you speak out against sexual immorality? Because you love people and you don't want them to die in their sins and go to a devil's hell. That's why you speak out against it. That's exactly why you do. It ain't got nothing to do. Listen. If you didn't love people, you wouldn't warn them. Will God spare America? He ain't going to spare America's lifestyle. He hates it. He hates it, y'all. He hates it. It's a sin against a holy God. And to think we got to the place that the leader of our executive branch said, I think that sex, same-sex marriage is okay. It's almost like we spit in the face of God. You say, we didn't, nobody would spit in the face of God. I'll tell you, they spit in the face of Jesus before they took him to the cross. No, God will not spare America's lifestyle. He hates it. Humanism, materialism, hedonism, the sexual revolution that has absolutely gripped our country. Abortion. And let me tell you one other thing. You've got to understand this. It's probably as big a problem as any that we have in this nation that God hates. And he hates it. And if you think God's going to overlook it, you do not, you've never read your Bible and you've never understood what, how God deals with things. You, 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 you've missed it. God hates sorcery. And he hates sorcerers. You say, well, dear Lord, I missed that one. I ain't, I, I'm, not, I'm not into sorcery. You know what sorcery is? It's drug use. The word sorcery comes from the Greek word pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy. And sorcery is to use drugs or potions, is exactly what it is. From alcohol to loratab to crystal meth, you name it, you name it, you name it. From crack to cocaine, it's sorcery. And God hates it. And I'm going to tell you one thing. And if you, you can write me off if you want to, but you better not write me off. The day you open the door to your mind through drugs, that's the day you invite demon spirits into you and to control you and to direct you. And I'll tell you, when I get around places where drugs are being used or in, in apartments where there have been drugs, I'll tell you, the demonic atmosphere is so straight, so strong, I have to get out of there as quick as I can. 
It is demonic. Well, you know, Brother Fred, I'm just trying to get a little relaxation. It's straight out of hell. And if you mess around with it, you're inviting demons to come into your life. It's exactly what you're doing. You are. I mean, so you just need to understand that, no, God is not going to spare America's lifestyle. He hates it, and he will not spare it. Okay? He's already judging it. I, I got to let you see this. I, I can't stay here much longer, but I got to let you see this. I want to show you how God is already judging America's lifestyle. Because, folks, listen to me. It ain't getting better. It's getting worse. You know, let me, can I tell you why? I'm just going to show you why God's already judging America's lifestyle. It's not if he is. He is presently at this moment. Turn to Romans chapter 1. And, and you'll just see. That God is already judging it. Already. I mean, man, it is so obvious, it is unbelievable. In Romans chapter 1, it says, they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. Now, would you look at verse 18? And I, I'm just going to spend a minute here, and I've got to move on. The wrath of God, Romans 1, 18. You know what that is, don't you? You know what wrath is? Judgment. It's judgment. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath is already revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and righteousness of men and those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Then he goes on and says that what could be known of God has been revealed to him by creation. And it says in verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools who changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Verse 24, underline it. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. To uncleanness. In the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature, humanism, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason that they chose to worship the creature instead of the Creator, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Vile passions. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in lust for, 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 another, for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something. People can get upset about that, and they can say they don't like that, but I didn't write it. God wrote it. And America's just giving them up. He said, okay, that's what you won't go. And he's taking his hand. God's restraining hand is off of the morals of this nation. He's removed his restraining hand. You say, Brother Fred, it gets worse. You better believe it. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get so bad that it's going to absolutely destroy itself. I'm telling you. Nations do not fall, most of them, from without. They fall from within. God, the worst thing God could do is give you up to a reprobate mind. But he's done it. You say, how in this world can our country think the way it thinks? You know what a reprobate mind is? They call right wrong, and they call wrong Right. They call right wrong, and they call wrong right. There's absolutely no moral absolutes. It's called a reprobate mind. In other words, well, that's, it's, it's, it's right, but no, it's wrong. But no, they call right wrong and wrong right. Well, so God's not going to spare America's lifestyle. In fact, he's already judging it because sin has its own built-in penalty. It has its own built-in penalty. I want to know that. I was talking to a man this week who is God miraculously delivered from crystal meth. And he said, Brother Fred, before I got on crystal meth, I weighed 235 pounds. By the time I arrived at the rehab center, 
I weighed 135 pounds. But you know, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ that changed his life, and he's absolutely on fire for God now. That shows you what God can do. That shows you what God can do. All right, now I want to move on and tell you two things that have got to happen. So God is not going to spare America's lifestyle. But I mean, I do, will say this to you. God will spare his church and use it to bring spiritual awakening. Now, I believe that. God will spare his church. Now, how do I know that? He, he spared Noah. He spared Lot. And I believe, now I'm not talking about organized religion. It's part of the problem, okay? Because it has no moral convictions. But I'm talking about the body of Christ. God will spare his church, and he will use his church, his people, to bring spiritual awakening. I believe that. Because he's promised that he would do that if we would pray and cry out to God. You know, he can revive his church. I read, you know, somebody says, well, Brother Fred, now, now what is a spiritual awakening? What is it? I mean, what, what is it? You, we keep praying about we need revival. We need, listen, I want you, this is the best I've heard in a long time about what a spiritual awakening is. I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. All right, it says this. A spiritual, awakening, a spiritual awakening has been defined as a movement of the Holy Spirit bringing about a revival of New Testament Christianity in the church of Christ and in the related community. The outpouring of the Spirit revives the churches, awakens the masses, and moves unconcerned people toward the Christian faith. The desperate cry from the inner depths of hungry hearts today ought to be, whatever the cost, wherever it leads, Lord, visit us again with a, your mighty, glorious presence. Where God visits and awakes his church, and it affects everybody around him. Hey, by the way, you say, but Brother Fred, it's too big. It's too big. It's too big. The nation's too big. It's gone too far. Listen to me. Did you know in our nation there have been three great spiritual awakenings? In our nation, there have been three that affected the culture, that affected the country. Three of them. Number one, the first one happened, the first awakening happened in um, uh, 1740 to 1743. Now, I want you to listen to what happened. I'm just going to read just a little excerpt. But, but in between 1740 and 1743, there was a great move of God. Now, prior to that, two people God used, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And I'm telling you, God swept across New England. He did. He swept across New England. That whole area, and listen to what it says. How might this, this revival be described? Revival, said one observer, broke upon the slumbering church like a thunderbolt rushing out of a clear sky. God breathed new life into apathetic churches, and whole communities were affected. The revival was pre preceded by organized, united prayer in 1743. Listen to this. Conviction of sin was overwhelming and geog geographically widespread. Some said they saw hell open before them with themselves ready to fall in it. There was a seriousness an understanding that each man lived in the presence of a holy and awesome God. There was no attempt to get people saved until they were thoroughly convicted that they were lost. There was a return to righteousness. And then he says, learn this lesson well. Please listen to this. That's why we're praying for a spiritual awakening. A genuine spiritual revival can do more to transform culture than all of our political and social activism. Do we need to vote? Do we need to vote right? Yes. Do we need to pray for people to vote right? Yes. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you something right now. God can do in a short time what we could never do in 50 years. That was a great awakening in New England from 1740 to 1743 that changed the culture. And over 50,000 people, 50,000 people were converted. Now, the second great awakening occurred from 1790 to 1860. And I want you to listen to this. 
It, it affected the whole nation. It started in Kentucky. People had begun to move west from the, from the New England, and, and, and they're, they're, they started having camp meetings in Kentucky, and revival broke out at one particular camp meeting. And then the Cane Ridge Revival, it was called, in Kentucky, where people came by wagons, 25,000 people by horse and by wagons came to this outpouring of the Spirit of God. And it was just a, God absolutely transformed uh, that, that area during that period of time. It says here, uh, for example, part of that revival was in Rochester, New York, where Charles Finney was preaching. I want you to listen to what happened. Now, this, this is a spiritual awakening, y'all. What, what if this would happen in Mobile, Alabama? The whole city was involved. The shopkeepers closed down their businesses, and the tavern shut their doors. The Holy Spirit brought such deep conviction that it was common to see people lying on the ground trying to get relief for God from the conviction of the Spirit. Such fear of God spread to other cities in New York and throughout the United States. Finney said that that spiritual awakening is a renewal of the first love of Christians, resulting in the awakening and conversion of sinners. It was estimated that during this move of God, over a million people, in a short time, were converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I know that was a different day, 1740, 18, but I'm just telling you, the same God is on the throne. And, and, and do I know, think that every revival will come to every city and every place in this nation? I'm not God, but I do know one thing. The only reason we don't have revival, a spiritual awakening, is we're satisfied to live without it. And it seems to me we'd be desperate enough as we see the moral decay of this nation and realize that it is under the judgment of God that somehow the church would wake up and say, man, God has got to do something or we're all sunk. Then there was um, the third great awakening, 1857 to 1859. I want you to listen to this. I love it. Jeremiah Lampier was just walking around the streets of New York City where Wall Street was. And he said, well, what can I do? The nation was in decline. Religion was dead. So he published a leaflet, and he put it in all the businesses around Wall Street and said, at 12 noon, at so-and-so address, we're going to have a prayer meeting. We're going to gather to pray. At 12 noon arrived. The only one was there that was Jeremiah Lampier. At 12.30, there were some steps, heard some steps coming up, some people coming up the steps. And soon there were six men, and they prayed for revival. They prayed for spiritual awakening. It says the very next month, now get this, they started praying. The very next month, October 1857, the stock market crashed. And people felt a greater need to seek God. Now get this. You say, well, Brother Fred, it's got to start big. No. There were six people there at that first prayer meeting. Within six months, a total of 10,000 men were gathering every day for prayer in many places throughout New York City. 10,000 in six months all over New York City praying for a spiritual awakening. Started small at the obedience of one man. It went spread to Chicago, and the mayor said, listen what the mayor said. John Wentworth, the mayor of Chicago at the time, stood at the rear of the hall and listened with great attention. And later the mayor said, the great effects of this present religious movement are felt in every phase of society. This move of God is affecting everything in our culture. That was the third great awakening. Let, let me just... Read this, and I'm going to move on to my last point. Listen to this. Listen to how J. Edwin Orr described that spiritual awakening. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because there's got to be a spiritual awakening. And God awakes a slumbering church. He awakes his church. And the church gets on fire. And the church begins to pray. And it spreads to sinners. And it goes from one place to another. It all begins when God revives and awakens his people. Do I have to tell you that the church needs to be awakened today? I believe we believe that. My heavens. Listen to this. 
The influence of the awakening was felt everywhere in the nation. It first captured the great cities. It spread through every town and village and country hamlet. It swamped schools and colleges. It affected all classes without respect to condition. There was no fanaticism. There was a remarkable unity of approval among religious and secular observers alike. It seemed to many that the fruits of Pentecost had been repeated. The revival of prayer had impact on the heart of our nations. And hundreds of thousands of people were converted in a few years. See, I know what the devil says. Well, it can't happen today. It's too bad. Well, I want to tell you, it happened three times in this country. And every time it was desperate, just like it is today. And it can happen again. Now, let, let me close by saying this to you. What, 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 is it, what happens when revival, when there's a spiritual awakening? All right, listen, I'm just going. First of all, there's an awareness of God's presence. I mean, buddy, when God shows up, you don't have to say, I wonder if God's here. Let me tell you one thing. When there's a spiritual awakening, there's an awareness of the presence of God, the manifested presence of God among his people. Secondly, there's a return in the church to holy and righteous living. If there's a return to holy and righteous living. One person said that when, when the awakening came, that there was such a moral change in the people that you could leave a bag of gold sitting in the street and no one would touch it because there had become such an awareness of the need for holy and righteous and godly living. And spiritual awakening always results in holiness of life and in godliness of living. It means unity among the believers. It's not this denomination or that denomination. It's a child of God who's here and there. And they all come together drawn by the Spirit of God. And there's not only an awareness of God's presence and holiness and righteousness. But there's a unity that God brings to his people. And then the church becomes broken and burdened for the lost. They get concerned that's part of the awakening for the lost people around them. And start crying out that they will not die and go to a devil hell. And then there becomes a conversion of sinners. That's a result. Now, what can you and I do? First of all, we've got to ask God for a personal revival. I don't know where you are spiritually. I don't know. I mean, you know where you are spiritually. You really don't know where I am spiritually. You can't see my heart. But I'm telling you, we all, each one of us need a personal revival, a spiritual awakening that God would awaken us and take us to a new level spiritually, okay? So we need personal revival. And then we got to pray. I mean, there's never been a great awakening, a great movement of God apart from prayer. Never, never. It's always been when God's people prayed. The first awakening, Edwards and them, he called for concerts of prayer. And so we got to pray, and we're doing that. We're praying on Thursday morning, 6 o'clock. You can pray at home. You don't have to be there, but you can if you want to. We're praying at 7 o'clock on Thursdays. We, we're praying for our, we're just praying for revival. We're praying for spiritual awakening. We're praying for the election in November. Now, Mark, put, put this in your mind. The first week in August, August the 5th through the 11th, starts on Sunday night, goes through Saturday night. We're going to meet every night at 7 o'clock to pray for one, seven days. We're just going to meet and pray. What are we going to pray for? We're going to pray for spiritual awakening. We're going to pray for uh, the election in November. Listen, we're going to gather for a week, and we're going to do nothing for an hour or longer just to cry out to God because we know that God can do more in a few seconds than we could do with all of our efforts. So we, we can pray. And here's the, um, the last thing, and I really got excited about this, and now this is my last thing. We can have personal revival. We can pray. Um, but then, you know what we got to do, y'all? And we've let the world intimidate us. But you know what we got to do? We have got to, more than ever in our history, proclaim the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16 has got to get on our lips and our hearts. You know what Romans 1.16 says? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God. Listen, it's the power of God.
unto salvation to everyone who will believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein the righteousness of God is revealed. Listen, we've got to say to people who are filled with bitterness and anger and hatred and prejudice and resentment. We've got to say to them, listen, I want to tell you the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died in your place. He took your bitterness and your anger and your hatred. And I want you to know through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ can set you free. We've got to say to the person addicted to, to drugs, listen, we know where you are, but we want you to know this much, that Jesus died for you and he rose for you. And the power of Christ can set you free from sorcery if you'll turn to Jesus Christ. See, the answer is Jesus. Why in this world don't we say to him, you can, there are many places for help, but you'll never be changed apart from the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ can set the bitter free. The gospel of Jesus Christ can set the pornographer free. The gospel of Jesus Christ can set the sexually immoral free. The lesbian, the homosexual, the adulterer. The power of Jesus Christ can set anybody free who will come to him in repentance of their sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time for the church to say the answer is Jesus Christ. His death, His resurrection, and the power of Jesus to transform your life. And that's the only way the culture will change. And that's the only way America will change. I'll read this, and I'm through. It's called The Rebirth of America. It's just about two paragraphs. From the very throne of God... Comes this message to us. Come let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We must return to the faith of our fathers. We must go to our knees in humility and prayer, in contrition and confession. In repentance and forsaking of sin. We must go back to the cross. Where the incarnate son of God was cursed. Condemned and crucified for man. The creature's sin. The crisis is acute. The danger is imminent. Time is running out. Something miraculous must happen in the heart and soul of America. Now before it's too late. The choice is clear. Repent or perish. Revival or ruin. Christ or chaos. The question is, which way America?